and this is the Laura Flanders Show, a TV and radio program that shines a light on the solutions of tomorrow today. We report on the people and movements driving systemic change from the worlds of politics, arts, and entrepreneurship. Welcome. In 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court could overturn the landmark decision legalizing a woman's right to have an abortion called Roe v. Wade. In so doing, the court would be imperiling all women's freedoms and creating a new pipeline to prison for the vulnerable, just as the world is learning how counterproductive most incarceration solutions are. Today's guests argue that things could have been very different if the white-dominated so-called choice movement had paid closer attention always to all women's choices, or lack thereof, or if the anti-violence movement had rejected criminalization and incarceration as a solution to the violence in women's lives. Things could have been different, our guests argue, if a different part of the U.S. women's movement had received more attention. Attention it's just now beginning to get. There's always been such a movement, they argue, because they were there. Today we talk to black abolitionist feminist Beth Ritchie and queer southern feminist Suzanne Farr. They have worked together for abolition, feminism, and systemic change for 40 years. What have they learned? What is their message for us now when so much hangs in the balance? Beth Ritchie is the head of the Department of Criminology, Law, and Justice and Professor of Black Studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and co-author with Angela Davis, Gina Dent, and Erica Miners of Abolition Feminism Now, which is just out this week from Haymarket Books. Suzanne Farr, longtime Southern organizer and coach of generations of movements, has just released this fall her own critically important book called Transformation Toward a People's Democracy, which is out from Virginia Tech Publishing and available for free for all as a download. Let's start with you two knowing each other. You've known each other a long time, right? Um, Suzanne, you want to kick off? Tell us a little bit of the story. I think we've known each other almost 40 years, which is... Uh a wonderful gift to have a movement friend and a beloved good friend as well. And um, I think that's what movement gives us. And we, we came together in the creation of a, a structure for the, what we call the battered women's movement, what we call, now call you know, gender violence, an effort to end gender violence. And one of the things we were discovering was how much violence there was against women. And what we also were discovering, something that we knew in our bones, but I don't think that we had fully recognized, was that male authoritarianism was part of the whole structure around racism, gender violence, uh, economic exploitation, and began to realize that this had, this had to be confronted. The other thing that was rising during that time was radical black feminists. And so these enormous numbers of, of yeah. Pieces of information were coming forward at that time. So then, then I meet Beth. Right. Suzanne and I were at a meeting on different sides of the room. Um, and, you know, looking at us and hearing our biographies, we came from really different places, you know, quite literally 
and biographically, in terms of geography, in terms of age, race, you know, so many differences between us. And there, at least I felt, Suzanne, like a kind of immediate connection, not around those things that were so different, but around a shared political commitment to bringing together feminism, uh, a commitment to ending gender-based violence, and appreciation for even a lifting up of Black radical mm -hmm. feminism. I think we're coming back to that place, that space where Suzanne and I met each other. I think we realize that a lot of what has happened in terms of feminist organizing has um, been narrow, it's been siloed, it's been um, mm, co-opted, if you will, by the pressure to uh, be legitimate, to be, um, to have lots of people identify as a feminist. I think we've lost our radical edge in some ways, and we've lost our ability to look across a room and see someone who's so different from us politically and biographically and say, we can be in coalition together. Mm. In fact, we have to be in coalition together if in fact we're going to make change. You uh, Suzanne, talk about um, work that is uh, domesticating versus work that is liberating. So do you think our um, movement to protect or organizational work to protect Roe versus Wade, reproductive rights per se, has been domesticated in that sense, Suzanne? I think, I think the work has been more about providing abortions than it has creating the freedom of our bodies, of, of really looking at body integrity, pushing the argument that this body is all that we own. You know, this, 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 this is where we, do, do we have freedom or not? If you don't own your body, what else do you own? If you cannot have the management of what that, that body is going to do and have, where does freedom lie? Mm -hmm. And so I think that the concentration on the Supreme Court is a concentration just on the delivery of, 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 of abortions is good, you know, but not enough. Here we have a situation where the Supreme Court justice saying it's no imposition for a woman to carry a baby to term and then just deposit that child at a firehouse, fire station. And, and so I would completely agree with Suzanne. I think... On the one hand, as feminists, I want to say as abolition feminists, we have to take care of the legislative process that would guarantee our rights. We have to do that. But it is not enough, because if we rely only on the state to set us free, we will not be free. I mean, the state's interest in controlling our bodies and our money and our movement across borders and our, our everything about our life um, has to be part of what we think about as the feminist, um, the radical feminist, led by black feminism, I wanna say, agenda. So I think we have to be careful about what we think of as abolitionists as uh, reformist reforms. How do we make the legislation a little bit better so that a few more women have access to abortion? 
How do we do that in a way that says we are out here doing radical work? This isn't, uh, we can't concede to sort of mainstream arguments. I talk in my work about how we won the mainstream as feminists, but we lost the radical movement. And winning the mainstream will only get us to the place where we are now with Roe, where we can't say, separate from legislative protection, what are we doing about freedom? That has to be our driving question. It's both and. It's not either or, but it has to include the more radical work. These have been hard decades, um, going from the 70s to now. And the few victories there have been, call it Roe versus Wade as one. Um, We haven't yet talked about the Violence Against Women Act um, and hate crimes legislation. But the few things that have been passed that people, particularly in mainstream, white, middle-class people claim as victories, have been the focus of a defensive movement. Um, And in the meantime, those were never the ideal goals of the movement that you represent um, and that you've been part of. And yet it has been very hard to articulate that other vision while there's been this defensive battle going on. Like, what do you think we need to shed in this moment? And, And very bluntly, will you be grieving if Roe versus Wade is indeed overturned? Um. So I move between grief and joy. I think many of us do during this time. We have witnessed and endured just things that we never imagined would be possible. And that's the good and the bad news, I think, Laura. Like on the one hand, I feel like we um, lost our inability, we lost our ability to look at state violence as part of gender-based violence. Over the years, I think that's led to an increase, I think increase in mass criminalization and incarceration. I think the anti-violence movement had something to do with that because we didn't critique carceral responses. In fact, we aligned ourselves with the criminal legal system. Um, Meaning just we we accepted or the anti-violence against women movement accepted that the solution to violence against women was incarceration of people committing violence. More policing, uh, more surveillance, um, more longer sentences, domestic violence courts, all of those things, the Rape Shield Act, all of those registries, sex offender registries, all of those things that might create moments of immediate safety for a person in crisis, but ultimately feed and fill up the spaces of carcerality that work against us. And that meant that we weren't in a position to work in solidarity with reproductive justice movements or healthcare movements for all people that would have blessed us in a very different position around COVID or Uh, with anti-violence organizations so that when there was a racial justice uprising, anti-violence folks should have been at the front of the line of those protests, right? That we siloed ourselves because of our alignment with carceral solutions. I think it's changing. I really do. And I think one of the reasons it's changing is because there are organizations like Insight, um, like uh, Gen 5, like organizations all around the country, creative interventions, I could name them. We talk about them a lot in abolition feminism now that are really, they're not winning their campaigns all the time, but they're struggling and fighting and bringing a different kind of analysis, a different kind of opportunity to organize. Mm. Suzanne? I, th- I think that we're in a place where we have to um, kind of protect and defend and build at the same time, you know. I think it's not just a fight that's here. 
there's a lot of protection that we have to do, but we really have to build. And I don't think we can build in the way we've been building. Um, I, I think we still suffer terribly from, you know, the myth of scarcity, that there's not enough to go around and somebody's, got, if there's somebody else gets something, it's going to be taken from me as opposed that we're going for the whole. So I do think that we're at this great moment of the possibility of seeing us as a collective, you know, seeing, seeing our lives as terribly linked to each other. For, for example, in COVID, this idea that I may not have it, but I could carry it to you, you know, that, that and a connectedness of that, that we ask, ask people, ask people to see. But I, I think we're going to have to shed a lot. And a lot of that is, is going to have to be in the realm of competition. Mm -hmm. I think it, you can't build movement with groups in competition with each other. And that's one of the th another things that the whole nonprofit industry brought, brought us is competing for money. And then you make your work compete with each other. So you got two levels of competition there that make you not join together to make something larger. We're at the point that we had to join together or die, and not just because of COVID. This is the Laura Flanders Show. I'm Laura. My guests are both longtime frontline abolition feminists, scholars, and authors. Dr. Beth Ritchie, Suzanne Clark. For 40 years, they've worked together for abolition, feminism, and a systemically different and better world that they say is within sight right now. Dr. Beth Ritchie is the head of the Department of Criminology, Law and Justice, and a professor of Black Studies at the University of Illinois, Chicago, and she's the co-author of the just-released Abolition Feminism Now with Angela Davis, Gina Dent, and Erica Miners. Suzanne Farr is co-founder of the Southern LGBTQ advocacy group Southerners on New Ground, SONG, director emeritus of the Highlander Research and Education Center, and founder of the historic Arkansas Women's Project in Little Rock. Her latest book, which gives a real-time chronicle of much of her on-the-ground organizing, is called Transformation Toward a People's Democracy, and it was released last fall by Virginia Tech Publishing. You can find more of my conversations with Far and all of our coverage of the abolition and women's rights movements at our website, lauraflanders.org. While you're there, sign up for our weekly alerts to receive information on all of our streaming events and web exclusives, like my commentaries this week's on the problem with American exceptionalism, and our uncut interviews, like the most recent one with Arundhati Roy. All that is available for those of you who sign up for our weekly alerts, so do it so we can stay in touch with you. Next, Suzanne Farr shares the significance of the Arkansas Women's Project that she was part of founding back in the early 80s. But first, here's Josh Peace PB remix of You Try Living by Black Guy, White Guy vs. 808 Beach, featuring Annalisa Lamola from the Red Hot and Free Remix Collection, released by the Red Hot Organization, an organization fighting HIV AIDS through music and pop culture.
why was the Arkansas Women's Project historic? Well, <laughs> you, that, that sets me up to say, oh, we had the answers, but that's not, that's not quite, quite true. But I think it was historic because one, in, starting in 1981, that we were determined that we would work on uh, against sexism, against racism, and economic exploitation. And we would always combine those three, particularly that we would, we would never talk about one without talking about the other. So we wouldn't take just a narrow approach and that we would be a multiracial organization in, the, in, in Arkansas. And it was, it was unique for here, but it was certainly unique also for the, uh, elsewhere in the country. And we, we focused on people on the ground you know, and, and bringing in all of the people in, into this group to have a place, to have a home, and, and to be working on the, on the problems that they, that they named. I can't tell you, it was a learning school for us. Uh, but but coming, coming out of that, there were two things happening. One, the right wing was rising and becoming more and more visible in Arkansas. And so we were monitoring that. We connected ourselves with the Center for Democratic Renewal in Atlanta, and we were monitoring the Klan, exposing not just the Klan, Posse Comitatus, the skinheads, the Covenant Sword, um, Arm of the Lord, and exposing them to, to the public and also trying to, to um, protest against mm. them. So that was happening on one hand. On the other hand, we were seeing violence against all kinds of people. So we thought, well, it's not just the far right. It's... It's the racial violence, it's the, you know, it's the violence against women, violence against queers, violence against religious minorities. So we said, well, we should be monitoring them. Why, do we, why don't we just deal with the far right? That's not the biggest issue. Everyday lives, those are the biggest issue. Mm-hmm. And so when we monitored those, suddenly we realized we set up little groups around the, country, the whole state. So they sent us newspaper clippings of what the violence was. We didn't accept any information except clippings because we knew that people wouldn't believe us. Mm-hmm. That was the only way we needed, needed to make it, make it authentic. And so when we got those, we created, we, we created a report. And what we found was far more women were experiencing violence. We couldn't even report it. And so we decided we'd report only the murders of women because they were so extreme. Yeah. And we, we wrote a report where we gave every detail, her name, where she was killed, how she was killed, who killed her, whether the children were there, whether her body was abused, whether she had clothes up, you know, all, all of those details, then how it ended up. Did this person go to jail? Did, you know, did they, did they ever find the person? All of that. And we, then we gave it back to the public. And so people developed a tremendous consciousness of the kind of violence that women experience. Mm. And, yeah. and so I think the answer to your question is, it's work on the ground, yeah. I think, that will lead us through this. I really encourage people to check out the book. And the download is, is available free because you have an important distinction that you made there uh, in the area of hate crimes um, to talk from the individual to the system, to the society that maintains the regimes of violence that we're really talking about, whereas our media likes to talk about the individual at the end of that long chain. You've laid out so many of the pitfalls that we've 
fallen into many of our organizations. And certainly I hear the failures of our media to do that job of connecting anyone to anyone. Talk to those who say, okay, all this is very good and you're doing important grassroots work that will pay off in generations. But right now my hair is on fire because our rights to an abortion hang in the balance. We have an election coming up. We just need to vote for the least worst and the planet's on fire. I think for me, um, you know, these are, these feel like emergencies, but in fact, there's a long history, both of how we got to where we are and resistance against those forces. And I think one thing we need to do is understand this is long-term struggle, even though there's a vote coming up, right? And we need to be able, therefore, to think of a long and a long-term strategy and a short-term strategy. We need to try to win, and we need to put all of our best thinking and our best organizing toward winning whatever the campaign is. And we need to think long-term, how does this campaign fit within a broader agenda of creating the world we want to live in? Mm -hmm. That's the abolition piece. What is it that we want beyond fighting for rights or fight or putting out fires, but what broader issues of change do we want to be involved in? And once we sort of are give enough energy to both of those spaces, I think we need to recommit to on the ground, grassroots, local support like Suzanne described. I mean, yesterday's consciousness raising is today's mutual aid you know, in some ways. And it means that we have to find ways to put ourselves in the space of caring for each other, uh, building communities. And I think, you know, when people hear building communities, they think building in black and brown communities where people, I mean, building communities everywhere. If one thing we've learned is that isolation can lock you down and sort of tear apart a fabric that you assumed was there, even if you didn't use it. So mm. all people need to be reminded of how important communities are for our life and work to build ones that we want to really live in. You have said, and it is repeatedly said that the definition or one of the sort of core credos of the abolition feminism movement is the belief that another world really is possible. Um, we like to ask people on this program, you know, what experience do you root that belief in? Um, Suzanne? Well, I could say a number of things, but one is around queerness. You know, to go from being a potential felon to having some freedom, you know, not not everything that one one would want, but be to see that 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 shift can change, you know, that you can you can move from some place in which you are feel forced to be totally invisible in my lifetime to my age now in my eighties to see that there's space for people to breathe who are queer, who are trans, gender non-conforming. Non that, that, to me, is a line of possibility. Beth? I would say, you know, two things. One is, for me, the kind of everyday abolition, the ways that people are keeping each other safe, the way that we have campaigns that women are coming out of prison when they were, you know, sentenced to life for saving their own life, 
Um, and they're coming out and they're being held by small groups of people, some formal and some informal, and saying, you're, you're ours now. We got you. We're not going to let that happen again. We're going to not. We took care of your kids while you were there. Welcome home. And home is a different kind of place than the one you left where you were so badly hurt, right? So I see small acts like that. I mean, that's not small, that's big, right? But they don't sort of appear like as abolition news, but we are taking care of each other. Yeah. We really are. And I see the campaigns against criminalized survivors as one example of that. All around the country, we're doing that. And I think the other place, Laura, is really where we started, that Suzanne and I, for 40 years, 40 long years have not only done work, but we've changed the work that we've done. We've uh, gone back and redone some things that didn't work out so well, that we've brought other people into the community of our friendship, that we've celebrated each other's lives as well as supported each other's work. You know, I think that's, um, it, it's, I don't often think of friendship as resistance, but I do think that there really is something about the possibility that our relationship with each other represents for people. Yeah. And um, that's why I so appreciate you inviting us both to be on the show, because I think that there is something here about what the possibility is. A lot of people would have said, mm, that's impossible. Those two, no. Um, my parents would not have thought it was possible, for example, that a, a white Southerner uh, from Little Rock, Arkansas could be, you know, one of my dearest friends. I wouldn't have thought it was possible. But look at where we are. Well, I think we should tell more of these stories more of the time. So um, we will continue to commit to that. And I want to thank you two so much for being with us. some ideas get traction and others remain marginal on the sidelines? Well, media have a huge role to play. Go back 50 years, the height of the 1960s, and ideas like greed is good or voting is dangerous were marginal at best. It was years of repetition by right-wing media outlets collaborating that made those ideas and the people that voiced them central to our politics today. So, too, ideas like abolition feminism may have once seemed marginal, barely a whisper, but today they are gaining traction. And independent media like this program and public television and other non-commercial media outlets are a big part of why. Could things have been very different today? Absolutely. Could they be different still? Well, perhaps if we learn the lessons of collaboration. So in that spirit, I want to tell you that there's a full-length interview with Beth Ritchie, Gina Dent, Erica Miners, and Angela Davis about their new book right now on Democracy Now! And to remind you that the full uncut version of my conversation with Beth and Suzanne is available as a download, as a podcast from our website. For more information on this week's guests, along with a suggested reading list and links to related episodes to explore in our archives, go to patreon.com forward slash The ALF Show, which is where you'll also find an invitation to join me to watch the premiere of each week's episode on YouTube, 11.30 a.m. Sundays, Eastern Time. All the details are at patreon.com forward slash The ALF Show. Also at Patreon right now, for our Patreon partners, 
early access to the full uncut version of my recent conversation with author and activist Arundhati Roy. Roy had a lot to say that we couldn't fit in the program about surveillance and data mining in the age of COVID, the realities of India's pharmaceutical industry, the importance of trans politics, and more. Well, our Patreon partners, who support this free podcast with a contribution of whatever size every month, help keep all of our programming free on TV, radio, and as a podcast. To thank them, we give them early access to all of our uncuts and more. This week, we want to welcome our latest new Patreon partners, Linda and Tirza. Thank you. We have a lot in store for you in 2022. And for all of our listeners and viewers, thanks to you, our Patreon partners, and everyone who joins me right here. Your support is crucial. Stay kind. Stay curious. Till the next time, I'm Laura.